School voucher fights. Don't get scared now. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com and reporting for duty as always at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com is Jeremy Wallace. Happy Friday, Jeremy. Oh, yep. Just glad to be here. Just glad to have survived a week. Yes, another week in the books. Let's recap it all for people. Actually, there's no way to recap it all. It's not possible. This show would be four hours long every week if we actually went into detail about every single thing that happened in Texas politics that week. And nobody wants that. At least I don't I don't think they do. So what we try to do here is distill for you the important things and some things you haven't heard about just yet or some things you haven't heard about in a while. And I was scratching my head as I was listening to some of these speeches this week, Jeremy. It was all about school choice. Did you see that the Texas Public Policy Foundation, they've got their quote-unquote orientation going on this week? It's something that I never go to anymore. I, I can't take it. But I see the social media posts about this thing, and you know that the Texas Public Policy Foundation was founded on the issue of not just, quote, school choice, but school vouchers. And you covered uh, the school voucher fight and the original uh, creation uh, of the school voucher system they have in Florida, or at least, you know, got really into the weeds of that while you were a reporter there, right? I mean, their politics on this in Florida versus Texas, that's very different there, isn't it? Yeah, and they're light years ahead of where, you know, Texas Republicans are on that discussion. Uh, I think ahead, depending where you stand on the issue of uh, school Light vouchers. years down the road on vouchers, for sure. Exactly. A lot of what we're talking about, Texas has already left the barn in Florida a long time ago, right? So, but yeah, they definitely have a, a much more robust, you know, school choice program, not just with charters and in public schools, but also they do have provisions that allow people to use, you know, public school funds to go to mm-hmm. private schools, you know, thus the vouchers, you know. Right. So. We have uh, schools of choice here. We have, uh, you know, the I could say the campuses of choice. Uh, you have the uh, charter schools as well, but not a voucher, not the, not the full-blown thing, the school choice thing, which is one of those uh, holy grail things for conservative activists, right? And I think it makes, and I've, you know, I've covered this debate for decades at this point, um, it makes some in the conservative movement, I think this is fair, makes some of them nuts that Texas, the biggest Republican state, does not have a full-on school choice program. So it's something that Republicans have to, certain Republicans, I mean, some are all in on this, others have to sort of walk a careful line on it. Um, Did you see Governor Abbott's event in DFW yesterday? He was in uh, Louisville, Texas, up in the suburbs. I drove through there uh, a couple of days ago as I was heading to Denton uh, for an event. Uh, Nice there on Lake Louisville. It's It's a nice part of the state. He was there at a charter school, and he was going to talk about a parental bill of rights. You're going to hear a lot of this. There's a parental bill of rights, a taxpayer bill of rights. I don't know what other bills of rights we're going to have before this Republican primary is over with. Um, but at this school, we've all been to an assembly like this, sort of like this, where the kids come out and they sing a song at the yep. beginning. Jeremy, when you go to the Astros game, do you get up and sing along in the seventh inning stretch to the stars at night are big and bright, of deep course, in the heart? Like- I, I made my daughter. I made my daughter sing that with me, especially at the right. Texans game, because they put the, uh, the 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 lyrics all on the screen, so you can <laughs> right. follow it easily. So right. So of course, the sage in bloom is like perfume. Yes. Yeah, but say it. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm expecting you to finish the lyric. Uh, <laughs> listen to the. Ki- Here's the deal: the kids doing it, and I'm not critical of the kids, but our version was no better than their version. At this event, Abbott talked about being pro-public education. He talked a lot about supporting public schools, Jeremy. Um, He talked about how much money the state has put into the public education system. Listen, I've been a very strong supporter of public education. I attended public schools, including one in Dallas County when I was growing up as a kid. As governor, I've devoted more funding toward public education than any governor in the history of our state. But all that being said, We need to understand that at the end of the day, no government 
program can replace the role that parents play in the education of their children. So that sounds good. But when you listen to the speech, it was almost like he said, I love public education. And now let me tell you about all the problems with it. Right. He, he talked about the idea that parents should be able to make all sorts of choices uh, about you know what happens with their kids. And he said a lot of it was facilitated by opening schools in Texas at the height of pandemic restrictions. While students around the country were forced to stay at home, learning only by virtual education. In Texas, we opened our schools in the summer of 2020. And in doing so, we empowered parents with the decision-making authority about whether or not to send their school for in-person learning or to keep them at home for a virtual education. Also, this past fall, while local governments across America imposed mask mandates for students, I issued an executive order banning those mask mandates in our schools. He is laying a lot of groundwork here, Jeremy. Now, despite saying he's pro-public education, he's also slamming them for teaching critical race theory, which we still have not seen real evidence of that in school districts in Texas or almost anywhere else in the entire United States. I continue to scour the Internet to see if anything comes up where they you know, claim that they have evidence of this. Still seems pretty scant. Um, but the governor says that is also something that has to be dealt with. And when parents have grown rightfully upset about critical race theory being taught and used in our schools. I have signed two laws banning the use or teaching of critical race theory in all grades and all public schools in the entire state of Texas. Remember, they passed a bill on that. Was it during the regular session of the legislature and uh, the uh, Republican author of the bill uh, had admitted during the debate on the House floor it doesn't really ban critical race theory, the first bill that they passed on all this. In fact, um, for that bill, I don't think critical race theory was that those words were even in the bill, but I'd have to go back and look at it. It did a lot of things that teachers groups criticized it for, uh, basically that it is micromanaging what teachers can say in classrooms about various events in history and current events. Uh, but all of this, Jeremy, whether it's the critical race theory, the masks in schools, uh, the remote learning, and all of that that really has taken a toll on so many families all across the country. And I think that's why you see so much pushback on the schools right now. Once you get through all of that in Abbott's speech, now you get the big payoff. It basically looking like a campaign rally in a school auditorium. I am running for re-election to create a parent's bill of rights to restore parents as the primary decision makers of their child's education and health care issues. As you pointed out on social media, Jeremy, this whole idea of a parental bill of rights or parents' bill of rights, sort of a cookie-cutter thing, right? Is this happening in other states, at least something very similar? Yeah, exactly. What you're hearing here is, you know, I know this is going to shock everybody who listens to this. What you're hearing here is politics. <laughs> politics as, as yeah. finest, right? Where where you know, Republicans know they have a winner or they feel like they have a winner in talking about critical race theory and taking control back from the school boards, right? And so you've seen in Florida, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a parental bill of rights, just like what Abbott's talking about last summer. Uh, in, in October or in November, you know, we saw you know, uh, U.S. House Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy pushing a similar idea, a federal bill of rights, you know, for parents. Uh, so you see this is an issue that they, they see as an opportunity to kind of seize on that momentum from all those fights at school boards mm -hmm. over the last year on critical race theory and drag it into the midterm elections because they know what that does more than anything. You know, whether they, you know, you want to talk about the specifics of whether what, what's critical race theory, what's not, regardless of that, there's a political motivation tool that they see that is mm -hmm. ginning up Republican voters, particularly heading into a primary cycle. So Abbott's having an ability to basically play a greatest hit from last mm -hmm. year and try to drag it into the next year to make sure it remains top of the charts, essentially, as a turnout method, 
you know, for Republicans, yeah. and particularly for him. So it looks like he's addressed this issue. It's not it's not good enough just to have already done the critical race theory, that right. stuff that he thought he did. But now he's getting a chance to kind of push it into the election cycle and to see if it has legs to get us all the way down into November. And similar to the issues surrounding public safety in the last election, the, the whole defund police argument, yep. uh, it also moves some um, uh, voters, uh, particularly suburban voters, who might be open to voting for some Democrats, uh, but they're also open to voting for Republicans. It may move them toward Republicans, which we saw uh, in a lot of parts of this state and around the country uh, in 2020. That's that's where you had a lot of those uh, voters who were maybe voting for Joe Biden, but then voted for uh, Republicans in, in every other seat, right? Yeah. For, for uh, you know, for down ballot uh, races. Now, it might sound a little cynical to make it sound like all of this is a cookie cutter deal, a national campaign, a thing that they're doing in other places. So, it's worth pointing out that at the event with Abbott, sort of with Abbott, <laughs> on a screen there next to Abbott was former U.S. Education Secretary Bill Bennett. Is this the 90s? Is this the 80s and 90s? Are we talking about Bill Bennett again? And are we going to bring up all of his problems? I'm going to I'm going to skip some of that because it's a little gratuitous. But of course he was, and this goes right back to walking this line about school choice and charters and vouchers and all that. Bill Bennett was sort of the one of the original uh, like the founding fathers of the school voucher stuff, right? I mean, back in the day, he was Mr. School Choice. Yeah, during the Reagan administration, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who had more influence in getting that school voucher discussion a national discussion, right? You know, it's like he really kind of, you know, got that going. So by the 90s, when, you know, George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, was, you know, you know as we were headed through the, into the beginning of the 90s, when George H.W. Bush was talking about school yeah. vouchers, Bennett was everywhere. Bennett was, right. you know, talking about vouchers. We were all writing about, I was in the D.C. press corps at the time. It's like no story could be written about vouchers that didn't go back to, you know, Bill Bennett and how he mm -hmm. kind of was structuring it all. And he sort of brought that um, um, intellectual heft to the argument. Yes. He's a guy who can really articulate uh, for not just uh, the intelligentsia, if you will, but also the average person. Uh, it, what he does is he has a he has an interesting way of making you feel okay for not understanding stuff. Okay, let me let me let me give an example. During that event yesterday with Abbott, when they turned it over to Bill Bennett to talk from wherever he was talking from, probably Virginia, Washington, whatever. Um, he was congratulating Abbott on what he's doing as far as going forward with this parental bill of rights. But then he also talked about and talked directly to parents in the crowd saying that, look, if, if the teachers and the administrators at the school are doing things that you don't understand, you don't quite get, well, then that means they're probably up to something that is very nefarious. The one thing I want to encourage parents to do quite apart from taking seriously what it is you have done here and what you have signed, and I salute you for it, is don't be intimidated by what we call the cult of expertise. You know, we, 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 we tend to think people are so expert, we should just defer. When it comes to the education of children, if you don't understand what they're talking about, you're probably right, and they're probably wrong. It's not complicated uh, what to teach children. And what parents want schools to do is teach children how to read and write and count and think and help them develop reliable standards of right and wrong. Promoting charter schools, they're promoting um, as sort of uh, as sort of almost a dog whistle for the school voucher folks that were on your side. But Jeremy, they don't quite go all the way there at that event. And Governor Abbott is trying to have it both ways on this for a reason. I'm sure that he has some of the donors to his campaign who want to see some kind of a push for more school choice or you know the full robust program that would be a school voucher program. Um, during a separate campaign event earlier in the week, Abbott was, Abbott was uh, getting the crowd fired up about the idea of school choice passing the Texas legislature. And listen to the way he talks about it. It's very very deliberate. You remember Tucker Carlson saying that Ted Cruz is always very deliberate in his speech and the words that he uses. When someone is a brilliant attorney, you I don't think you're playing a gotcha game when you key in specifically on the words that they're saying. And Abbott is like a living cipher. 
Okay, listen very closely to what he says here. He doesn't say he's for school vouchers, but but ask yourself this question. When the words come out of his mouth, do you think there are people in the crowd who think that he is for school vouchers? Take a listen. When, when people see what's happened in our schools during time of COVID, when kids have not been able to learn the way uh, they need to learn, face-to-face in a school, when you see schools imposing mandates on kids, on parents, on teachers, that those kids, parents, and teachers do not want. Let me tell you something. This upcoming session, next time, you're going to see a stronger, swifter, more powerful movement advocating school choice than you've ever seen in the history of the state of Texas. So he's laying out the reasons that you would see a big push for a school voucher bill at the Texas legislature. He didn't actually say that he's for it. Now, I went back and looked at some things that he said about this in the past, Jeremy. In the 2015 legislative session, it was the first session where Abbott was the governor. There was a big school choice rally at the Capitol. There's always one. I think it's. I think we're in school choice month. I, I believe it's January uh, every year. Uh, I, I know at the Capitol, there's always a, cho- a school choice rally. Um, but at this rally, it was notable because you had Governor Abbott, you had Lieutenant Governor Patrick, I think Senator Cruz was there. And remember, they're wearing the little yellow scarves that are supposed to symbolize school choice. And uh, Abbott at that time basically said, and I was reading some of the stories from the time, he essentially said, any school choice bill that makes its way to my desk, if, if that happens, I'll sign it. Now, that leaves open a lot of interpretation. (laughs) It leaves it open to interpretation. Um, But this is a no-go at the Texas legislature. Like you said, in places like Florida, they're so far down the road with this. They've got a full-blown school choice program, school voucher program. This, among Republicans in Texas, is very controversial. I think in some other places, it ends up being a traditional Republican versus Democratic fight. But in Texas, because of the because of our population distribution, because of the absolute the fact that there's no benefit to people in rural Texas from a school voucher program, um, the fact that there are people who would say they're far right uh, in their politics who are against a school voucher program. Why would they be against it? Well, I was talking to one just the other day who said that if you start to uh, give uh, public money to people for education then at some point the government's going to come in and start telling them what they have to teach the kids which for those kids for you know for the kids who are being homeschooled or going to some private uh, entity there's a lot of private entities that would say we don't want to take any public dollars because we don't want any strings attached to that so you have that you have the public education community which of course is very strong in Texas and is completely opposed to this. Their argument's very straightforward. They say, look, if you're taking any resources from public schools, then you're going to have public schools that are not doing as well. Uh, you you, You have some folks who try to punish schools by taking away resources if the school is not doing that well, when the folks in public ed would say, well, if you have a school that's not performing well, the last thing you want to do is take resources from it. You want to put resources into the public school. Um, There are uh, so many factions that are against this. Uh, uh, Rural Republicans, a lot of suburban Republicans, um, just about every Democrat uh, who are all against school vouchers in Texas. And since that big push in 2015, where it was supposed to be the big push for school vouchers, the Texas House has consistently voted with supermajority strength against school vouchers when they uh, debate the Texas budget. There's always you know a ton of amendments that are offered. I think it's uh, Abel Herrera from the Corpus Christi area who always offers up this amendment that uh, says that no public dollars in Texas can flow to a school voucher program. That's my paraphrase of it. And that amendment always passes with more than 100 votes in the House. So there's no constituency for this. So if people say, oh, hey, we're on the road to vouchers, I don't think so. But I do think, Jeremy, there's going to be some talk about this during the primary as some of these legislators go and some of these legislative hopefuls go through their primary races on the Republican side, they may get this question a lot. Do you support school choice? And in what form would you support it? How do you want it to look? Yeah, you even heard it in uh, Abbott's speech up in Louisville. One of the things he had said was that uh, all school districts are going to have to have information on school choice on their website for you know parents to be able to take their kids to charter schools, magnet schools, and he did not say anything about private schools or <laughs> anything of that sort. So, you know, he certainly wants to open the door for more charter school and magnet school type 
you know, transfers. But like he was, you know, very clear not to bring that up. You know, it's like what you said earlier. Sometimes, you know, especially with a guy like Abbott, you listen to what he doesn't say. You know, it's like he didn't say anything to those parents, you know, that said, you know, yeah, I'm for vouchers and I want school choice to mean, you know, taking your money out of this charter school and taking it to a private school. Uh, he's not going to do that there in Louisville. Right. That is uh, that's treacherous water for him. Now, here's what uh, his Democratic challenger, Beto O'Rourke, running against Abbott in the fall, of course, uh, both have to go through primaries first, but here's what Beto said about education in response to this big push from Abbott. If I were governor right now in the midst of this pandemic, I would gather every single educator I could and listen to you and say, how do we keep you in this profession at a time that we are losing far too many of you, at a time that one third of starting school teachers leave the profession within the first five years? You tell me and I'll follow your lead and your guide, but I'll make sure that you are paid enough not to work a second or a third job. I'll make sure that when you retire, we adjust your cost of living so that you can live on that retirement. Those of you who have retired after the year 2004 have not seen an adjustment since then. We're approaching 20 years without any change as inflation rises. We're gonna make sure that no standardized test, no matter how high the stakes or how high the pressure, is gonna be used to define your performance your child's progress in front of you in that classroom, or the potential that you have to unlock a lifelong love of learning in the children of this state. It's interesting to me that they're saying some, some things that are similar, uh, Jeremy, about some of the uh, things that, that people are concerned about, but the, the folks they're talking to, the emphasis on who they're talking to is a little different. Abbott is prioritizing his emphasis, at least, on parents and their choices. And Beto seems to be uh, emphasizing the audience of the teacher and what they're going through, right? I mean, they're both saying that parents and teachers and everybody who's in the mix at schools is important. Um, but Beto really making more of an appeal to those folks who are in the education profession. I can tell you that in watching primaries than general elections in Texas over the years, this is kind of what happens where the Republicans talk more about, you know, the individual, uh, you know, person who's got a kid in the school. The, you know, the, the teachers probably takes, you know, they play second fiddle in the Republican primary, right? Opposite in the Democratic primary. And then in the general election, these things start to align more where you even have Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick as he was running for re-election in 2018, some of his radio ads in rural Texas were focused on pay raises for teachers, right? He was promising the teachers that they were going to get something. Because guess what? Those teachers, so many of them, are also parents, people who participate in the economy, like just just like everybody else. Um, and so it, it, is, um, it is interesting how this is going to line up as we move forward. Now, you mentioned to me earlier that Beto was at the editorial board. Uh, for the San Antonio Express News, what kind of stuff was he talking about there? Yeah, yeah, he, he hit on a lot of things. You know, talking about education, as we we talked about. It. You know, again, it's good primary politics, right? To be talking about trying to, you know, you know, give pay raises to teachers. You know, teachers and the teachers unions are very democratic, and obviously in their voting. So he's kind of speaking to the right, you know, crowd for a primary, right? But you know, additionally, like you know, one of the you know one of the people at the uh, editorial board meeting asked him about, you know, what did he learn. From his run uh, from Congress, uh, uh, for his run for president, and his oh, first yeah. words were, "What beyond don't run for president?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then he, he explained that, like you know, that yeah. it, it, one of the things he learned, but it was just a different game. You know, it's like where in that 2018 you know, race, he said, was more about like a movement and who we are as Texans. He said, you know, but what when the presidential race started, it became more about him. You know, and some of it was because of his own missteps, he acknowledged, but it became like a, a different kind of debate. And so anyhow, you hold me, he said he just wasn't a good candidate uh, mm -hmm. and did not run a good campaign, doesn't regret having run for president, uh, but says, you won't see me do that again. <laughs> so mark that down. So if, you know, in the year 2024, when his name gets, you know, bounced around, <laughs> who knows? But, yeah, we'll uh, but yeah, it was an interesting, you know, yeah, discussion on just kind of how he thinks he can win now versus mm -hmm. uh, what happened in that presidential campaign. So just trying to figure out what worked, what didn't work, and how yeah. does that translate into a gubernatorial race. Well, did he have real ideas on how he can win now? Because it does, I mean, to, you know, to most political observers yeah. and anybody who's trying to be objective about this and not just a Beto cheerleader, it's an uphill climb for a Democrat yeah. in Texas. 
Yeah, and his his primary thing was you know looking at how close he came in 2018, uh, and then looking at the energy of that's happened now. And he said the one thing that's kind of changed everything is that the door that he thinks Abbott has opened. And by that he was talking about the you know the electricity grid, uh, the failures of that, and his mm-hmm. response to COVID, yeah. uh, and the far right push that he thinks the legislature has gone too far to appease Abbott. So he thinks those issues are enough to kind of give him additional energy on top of the 2018 kind of you know feel that he thinks he's able to create so he he seems to think he has a pathway because of all that well he certainly has significant fundraising i was looking at their numbers uh jeremy and he got in in about six weeks beto o'rourke and it shouldn't surprise people because he's a prolific fundraiser seven uh million dollars a little more than that seven million in six weeks i'm just going to go with that abbott of course he got about 19 million, but that's in six months, right? He's a different kind of fundraiser, uh, also prolific. He has about $65 million in the bank right now. He could just go ahead and set up the bank of Greg Abbott and, you know, bankroll the entire Republican Party if that's what he wanted to do. He, in some ways, he has done some of that over the last couple of uh, election cycles, right? And creating some infrastructure for Republican candidates. We know that Abbott wants to do a version of that down in South Texas where Republicans are making a big push. But here was the discussion that I had with some political professionals that I thought was interesting this week. And I was challenging some assumptions because I just think it's, it's, it's crazy to me when people will say, that and you know people want to say they they want to ask, ask this question first seven million is that a good number or a bad number well I said oh, I don't know I mean I, you know I, we'll we'll see how it goes he's just getting started right that's the first six weeks if you can keep up a number like that through the months all the way to November that's pretty competitive right with Abbott I mean you end up at depend you'll have good months and bad months so he'd be on track to have at least forty forty five maybe fifty million dollars in the bank to have to have raised and spent that much, right? And he doesn't really have to raise, uh, he doesn't really have to spend that much right now, right? He's in a primary and he can kind of keep his name out there. But a lot of the spending comes uh, when people really start paying attention, you know, for the big media buys and all of that, you know, when you, once you get past the summer and move toward the fall, when people pay attention to the stuff. Um, but people would throw around these numbers, Jeremy, they would say for a Democrat to win in Texas, and this is what I found just sort of strange for a Democrat to win in Texas, the argument goes, they need Easily fifty million, five zero million dollars, or some people would throw around a number like a hundred million dollars. Like if he doesn't, one person said to me, "This is a, a Democratic uh, uh, professional." They said, "If he doesn't have a hundred million, he can't do like a big fu sort of campaign where he cannot be drowned out by Greg Abbott on the airwaves. That he can go toe to toe with Abbott." And I'm asking this question: Is a big fu campaign the same or necessarily the same? as a winning campaign? I don't know the answer, right? But they're probably different. I think here are some of the mistakes people are making. And this is just me. I've done this for a little while. Maybe I know something. For one, I don't think it's fair to compare or even helpful or mean anything. Let me put it that way. Forget fair for a second. It doesn't mean anything to compare what Beto raised to what Abbott has in the bank now, right? Abbott's been working that for, he's been working on that for a long time. And the kind of campaign that Abbott has to run versus the kind of campaign that Beto has to run to be successful are different, right? That, that, you know, the, the kind of targeting that Beto would have to do is different from the kind of targeting that Abbott has to do. Let's go back to the 2018 campaign for a second. When you had um, O'Rourke and Cruz, and how much did those guys raise? I mean, you had uh, Beto burn through something like $90 million, right? Yeah, Somebody he raised said, $79 million, which at the right. time was the record for right. anybody running for the U.S. Senate. Huge money. So somebody said to me, the metric or the best metric for, for what a winning campaign in Texas looks like for a Democrat is that one. And I said, well, that assumes that they didn't waste any money on that campaign, right? It, it seems to me, it seems to me that Beto has surrounded himself with some political professionals of the caliber he didn't have working for him before, right, in 2018. In fact, he kind of went out of his way to say, we're not really doing that. We're not hiring big consultants. We're not polling. We're not doing all this sort of stuff. If you compare, so that, so one comparison that's bad is Beto to Abbott, right? If you look at the kind of campaign that was done in 2018, where did Cruz have to go at the end of the election to make sure he had enough votes in the bank because it's not dollars in the bank that win, it's votes. 
How many votes did he have in the bank once he went to places like Texarkana and Lubbock and Tyler and all these little places that he was doing events? Um, the Republicans in this state, if they want to win in what could be a competitive race, and Jeremy, I'm not even ready to say this is a competitive race. I don't know that. But let's get through the primary before I really yeah. get to that determination. But let's just say that it is. If you have a competitive race like they had in 2018, then the map for what for where Republicans have to do their campaigning is different from the map that Democrats have to focus on. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the big push that Abbott is making into South Texas right now, you know, we've talked about it on the show about, you know, whether they're, you know, really going to make up a lot of ground with Hispanic voters, a big appeal to Hispanic voters. How many stories have there been in national publications about uh, Hispanics in Texas or maybe starting to move toward the Republicans? Well, that's just not true at all. Uh, look, it's true in some places. It's not true in Houston. It's not true in DFW. It's not true in San Antonio or Austin or the big urban centers. It's true in the Valley. What I think when people talk about the Valley, they talk about the wrong demographic. They're, they're talking about Hispanics. And I would say what Republicans are trying to do in South Texas now is mine rural voters to find more rural voters. Look at the way that they cut up Cameron County for a Texas House seat. Part of the reason they did it that way is to get more rural voters into that House district. Who are they? And listen, there's a lot of overlap, right? Hispanic, rural, a lot of rural Hispanics down there. But the people that the Republicans are trying to get are rural. The people who are, you know, anti-abortion, they would say they're pro-God, pro-gun, uh, pro-oil and gas. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's a Hispanic guy with a gun rack on the back of his truck. That's the kind of voter that Republicans are trying to get down there. It's a rural voter. So I bring all that up to say that the map and the kind of ground game that Republicans will have to run if there's a competitive race, it's a bigger map than Democrats have to focus on. In Texas, where you have 30 million people or so, more than 17 million live in 11 counties, right? If you if you want to hit the jackpot as a Democrat and you're going to do a robust field operation, which who knows if they even will, because I don't know if they learned the lesson from 2020 about you know uh, field operations and block walking and all that sort of stuff. But if they do that, Plus, they're competitive on the airwaves with uh, Republicans. Of course, Abbott's going to have a lot of money for TV and all that, and then the Beto folks don't want to get drowned out. I just think that in the final analysis, number one, anyone who tells you that they know exactly how much money it takes for a Democrat to win in Texas statewide, they're just guessing because we haven't seen it in so long. If you compared it to the last time a Democrat won, which would be 1994, if you were going to compare that spend to a spend this year, you'd have to use the phrase in today's dollars because you have to you have to account for inflation. In other, and so bottom line, Democrats and Republicans in this state, if it is a competitive race, the numbers that they would have to spend are different for what the Republican would have to do versus what the Democrats would have to do. Your thoughts. Yeah, and th and there's nothing stable about how you run a campaign in Texas right now. It's like uh, each race is so different in of its own. Uh, you know, think about you know Beto O'Rourke. You know, typically if we're talking about okay, what does a Democrat need to beat Greg Abbott? Well, there's like twenty million dollars you're probably going to need just to kind of build up your name identification. Mm -hmm. Beto O'Rourke doesn't have that expense. You know, like his name right. identification is already out there. And what else? We you know you look back at 2018. What did we learn from that race? Well, you know O'Rourke didn't use his money in traditional ways. You know, it's like so and that threw off all the math, you know, right away. It's like he wasn't up on TV and doing a lot of traditional, you know, things that you do, you know, in the early going. It wasn't towards the end that he started doing some television ads. But even then, remember, there weren't a ton of them out there. Right. It's like and so how he used his money, uh like Cruz was on TV more, but Ultimately, it didn't matter, you know. It's like, and then again, then you look at something like even go back even further, you know. Ann Richards, when she you know ran her race, you know, yeah. take whatever she spent, and was that spending? Is that what made her win, or was it maybe partly because of Clayton Williams? imploding right. on himself right we don't know what the next year is going to look like sometimes 20 million dollars is enough to get your message out to the people of mm -hmm. texas to get it done sometimes right. it's 50 million sometimes you know it's like uh, the person who spends less often wins you know ted cruz spent less than beto o'rourke and won his race it's yeah. like we don't know what the dynamics are going to be i always say like you know 
every candidate needs enough money to get their message out to as many people as they can mm -hmm. and to be able to fight back against whatever the other side does. In this case, we have Abin and Aurora Courts already have all sorts of name identification. It's not, it's not like Greg Abbott's going to be able to turn Beto O'Rourke into something else right now. It's like the guy's identified. You know, whether you like him or not, people know what he is. It's going to be a known quantity. Yeah. He's a known a, quantity. They either really like him or they don't. You know, I don't know that there's a lot of persuasion that can happen exactly. around him as a person. Right. Yeah. And, 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 it and, costs, to, mm -hmm. and it costs you twice as much money to change somebody's opinion. Uh, on somebody who's already out there. And so does Abbott really want to spend, you know, $80 million on trying to turn, you know, Beto O'Rourke into something else? Or is what he's running against going to be good enough? So, you know, all the numbers to me, it's like it, it's frustrating to listen to campaign finance report, you know, <laughs> journalism sometimes. And I'm guilty of yeah. it too, obviously. Oh, sure. Oh, it's, it's important. Like, it's important. Yeah, it, it, it's important to know what they got, where they get their money from. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily dictate you know, a lot, you know, it's like, right, it's hard well, to I, like, I know you have to have money to win. Uh, so as long as it's above zero, I think you have a shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it needs to be quite a bit above that, but, but to your point about what has happened historically, um, the, uh, race between Tony Sanchez, who was a Democrat and Rick Perry. Yeah. When was that? 2002. Um, does that sound right? It was 20 years ago. Um, Sanchez spent fifty five zero fifty million dollars, and Perry spent seventeen million dollars. And you've never heard of Governor Tony Sanchez, have you? Right. In Correct. in a uh, in a uh, meeting, I was told, and this would happen often. Perry liked to reference that as like a power play thing. Um, as as governor, you know, you might be in a meeting where somebody says uh, that they're going to spend fifty million dollars on this or that. Maybe some state agency request. They want to spend $50 million for something at HHSC or the Texas Education Agency or something. And somebody might say that's a waste. And there was an exchange like that during a meeting where somebody said something about $50 million. And Perry, without missing a beat, because he can't help himself, <laughs> when he hears the term or when he hears the number $50 million, he just looks up and goes, if you want to know about wasting $50 million, you just call Tony Sanchez. <laughs> and everybody around the table says, whoa, Governor, okay, we get it. You kicked, you, you kicked his ass. We, we understand. All right. Um, this was interesting out of South Texas. The FBI, and this was the headline in the uh, Express News, the FBI has sideswiped a border Democrat in a re-election battle. Henry Cuellar is who we're talking about, a representative from Laredo. This is from a TV report on KSAT in San Antonio. New details tonight in that investigation linked to a local congressman. We saw FBI agents at U.S. Representative Henry Cuellar's home in Laredo yesterday. Now a source close to the investigation says the Department of Justice's Public Integrity Office is also investigating along with the FBI. They handle cases involving elected officials, including campaign finances. Interesting. Now, because Cuellar is a pretty conservative Democrat, folks in liberal, and I mean liberal, liberal media, like progressive media, some of these podcasts you've seen or the Young Turks and stuff like that, they yeah. were thrilled. They were thrilled to see this because they support the challenger to Cuellar in his primary. This is Jessica Cisneros, who has run against him before. And actually, she came pr pretty close last time, Jeremy, right? It was 52-48, uh, something yep. like that, if I, if I remember right. Uh, listen to this. It's, it's from a show called The Damage Report uh, by the Young Turks. And just listen to how gleeful they are about the fact that the FBI has visited Congressman Cuellar. Henry Cuellar is a Democrat for the most part uh, from Texas in the House uh, who narrowly beat out a primary challenge last time around from Jessica Cisneros. Well, he's being challenged once again. This time, though, it's not just a primary, which is also there. It's also apparently something to do with the FBI because the FBI conducted what it described as court authorized law enforcement activity at the Laredo home of Henry Cuellar just yesterday. Agents were also present at his downtown campaign office in Laredo. They put out a statement not saying much, but saying the FBI was present in the vicinity of Windridge Drive and a state drive in Laredo conducting court authorized law enforcement activity. The FBI cannot provide further comment on an ongoing investigation, which is too bad because I want to know. <laughs> All right, they're very excited about that. But you know, it's one of those where it's hard to speculate or say a whole lot about Jeremy because we just don't know anything about it. I will say this, and no one really knows anything. ABC News 
uh, had a source that told them last night that this raid on Cuellar's home is related to an investigation having to do with uh, Azerbaijan, that government. And he's apparently on the Azerbaijan uh, caucus in the in the house. So it may be something that's related directly to him. As you heard from the KSAT report, it could be something to do with his PAC and campaign finances. Who knows? But in any of these races, there's always a question about ethics and you know what uh, what politicians might be up to, whether there's any corruption, um, and that is something that can be on voters' minds when they go to the polls. Um, there is some question about whether these things are politically timed. I saw where Republicans were having a field day with this and saying that because Cuellar has been somebody who breaks with the Democratic administration, you know, because he's somebody who has criticized Joe Biden for his uh, response to the border uh, issues, uh, that uh, that maybe this is some payback for that. Although, again, none of that would be something that at least so far has been um, you know, uh, uh, substantiated. So we'll just keep an eye on that and see what's up with it. Should we do, and I'm asking this of you and the listeners, Jeremy, should we do a Dan Crenshaw update? Is yeah, it worth our time to, to do almost, that? I'm starting to think we should have a regular segment because it, it's getting to the point where he's, he's keeps making a little news. <laughs> well, he keeps making news, but I, I, I want to put this out. If, if folks want to tweet at us or send us, uh, you know, send an email or, or whatever, uh, if you're, if you're tired of the Dan Crenshaw updates, just let me know, but he does keep making news. Um, and so we're covering it, but yeah, it's, it's become such a common occurrence that I think we almost need a theme song for Dan Crenshaw fighting with Republicans. Here's what I'm trying to figure out about it. It's like he's having these fights with Republicans that don't help him at all. I mean, it, I don't see how they help him. Let, let, let's talk about this latest one and then get into it. Um, you saw that he said something that – and I I want to say in fairness to him, it seems like what he said was being twisted by some folks who are already angry with him about other things. Okay, yeah. so but but I'm going to play it for you so you can hear it and tell me if I'm off base. Um, he was on a podcast, and this podcast is hosted by a former Navy SEAL by the name of Jocko Willink. And here's what he said that some conservative activists said was way, way, way out of line. So that's important. I mean, that's the important thing is here is that we have societal hero archetypes that we look up to. Jesus is a is a hero archetype. Superman is a hero archetype. Real characters too. You know, I put I, I, I could, we can name a thousand. You know, Rosa Parks, Ronald Reagan. These, all of these people embody certain attributes that the American people think this is good. I'm going to offer an argument here, Jeremy. That and this is not a sophisticated argument. This is just very straightforward. Does Dan Crenshaw talk too much? He's always all in these podcasts, and he's always being interviewed in different places, and he's talking about things that have nothing to do with being a congressman. And this is part of why he gets in trouble. He's out there making all these comments and doing all this, all, doing all this commentary uh, when he doesn't really need to do that. You know, he's a member of Congress. Is it worth noting that for most members of Congress, and maybe because, and maybe this is why we don't have updates on August Fluger every week? I don't know if I've ever heard him talk. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of members of Congress. You don't hear them speak that much. Right. They, they might make a speech in the House or they'll do a local radio or TV interview just for their district. Uh, but Crenshaw wants a bigger presence than that. Right. He's, he's somebody who wants to be all over the place. And I think when you live by the media, you die by the media. Right. I mean, it, you had and you pointed out on Twitter, I think that, um, you know, Michael Berry, who is a big radio host in Houston, who I used to work with, um, he had been team Crenshaw when he was running. Uh, for office previously, and now Barry is one of those people who's angry with him. So when that comment was heard and then spread across the internet, I saw it all over Twitter. I'm sure it was on Instagram and TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but people send me stuff. Um, anytime somebody sends me a video from TikTok, I think this is why I'm not on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> but but this was being spread everywhere. And And what was being said about it, you heard what he said, what people were saying is that, and again, these are people who are already mad about mad about other things with him. They were saying that he's saying Jesus is not real. Well, how do you think that not a real person, right? That, that now, when I heard it, I didn't hear him say anything that would make me think that he thinks that, right? Now, now, if you are being literal, and you took the words that he said there, you could make the leap to thinking and saying. That he thinks Jesus is not a real person, right? But but how do you think that hits the ear of somebody who's a conservative Republican primary voter? 
if you suddenly have conservative activists saying that, hey, our congressman thinks that Jesus is not real. You think they would be happy about that? Well, no, they're not. So there's a lot going on here. But and where was this? This was in uh, this was in Montgomery County, is yeah, that right? I believe so. Which is is this part of his district that's new for him? Yeah, he's picked up a bunch of Montgomery County that wasn't in his district before. I want to say about three hundred thousand mm-hmm. people are now from Montgomery County are within his district. So these people are unhappy that they believe that he believes that Jesus is not a real person, and you can hear some of the folks there. This is this is a pretty big crowd. Uh, they're in Moco in Montgomery County. Um, and they're excited because there's a 10 year, and there was even some, uh, debate about whether it's really a 10 year old girl, but there was a young girl who walked to the microphone. She strode to the microphone to confront the Congressman about not believing that Jesus is a real person. And you can hear all these folks get real sort of amped up that she is taking him to task. Yeah. important thing here is that we have That's important hero archetypes that we look up to. Jesus is a hero archetype. Superman is a hero archetype. Real characters, too. too. I could name a thousand. Rosa Parks, Ronald Reagan, end quote. I can't wrap my head around this. Well, I'll help you. Put a period out okay. the word Jesus and don't question my faith. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Whoa. Wow. 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 You moron. So you heard uh, a woman in the crowd say, wow, when he said, just put a period after Jesus and don't question my faith. But he's speaking to a person who appears to be a very young girl. She, I mean, in the video, if you watch yeah. the video, she looks like she's probably about 10, 11 years old. Now, there was some claim that she's actually, and I don't know how this could be true because I watched the video. There was some claim that this is actually an 18-year-old volunteer for somebody's campaign. But I have that's not been substantiated. But... I have a feeling that if it's a 10-year-old girl, then there's someone who put her up to that. That's my thought, right? That she didn't come up with that on her own to go to this Republican event to confront the congressman about something that had been tweeted over and over again by Republican activists. I, I have I have to believe that someone spoke to her about it before she went and did it. Okay, so, so you have Crenshaw now arguing with this young woman. Now, if you're a congressman and a 10-year-old wants to confront you about this, I'm not even going to start to offer advice on how you should handle it. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. But <laughs> maybe <my> being, expertise. <laughs> but maybe being ugly to a 10-year-old is not the right approach. Now, I'm going to go right back to my very simplistic uh, analysis of this situation, which is maybe the congressman talks too much. You know, he's 37 years old, Jeremy. He presents as somebody who people might think is a lot older. But he makes a lot of the mistakes that 37-year-olds that I know make, right? I mean, he's maybe talking too much. Why are you talking about all this stuff? Now, you heard the people get upset. It gets worse (laughs) as this goes on. The young girl is not happy with what he said. She challenges him on his answer. And here's how that goes. Don't question my faith. You guys can ask questions about all of these things, and I will answer them. But don't question my faith. I can question your faith if this is what you said. That's, I, I, I mean, you can read the quote again, but nowhere in that quote am I saying Jesus is not real. That's a ridiculous statement. Of course he's the son of God. Of course he's the son of God, and of course he's real. You can say two different things. You can say that on a podcast, and you can say this here. On the podcast, nobody would have understood it that way. I think you're twisting it that way. Which is not really Christ. Which is not very Christian. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. You're a Republican congressman, and the uh, people who are attending a GOP event in your district are yelling, let's go, Brandon, at you. I think you have a problem. What is it they say? Um, Congressman Crenshaw, call your office. But why is he doing this, Jeremy? Why does he continue to go down this road of arguing with and fighting with Republicans. I understood why he was doing it at first when it was the members of the Freedom Caucus who he felt had misrepresented his voting record. Um, But it it seems like he's having a lot of fights, as I started to say earlier. He's having a lot of fights that don't help him at all, right? I mean, it's it's a lot of times politicians will engage in fights that sort of galvanize their base. It gets people amped up. Like for him to fight with AOC, perhaps, would be good for him, 
right? Yep. For him to fight with certain other Republicans might be good for him. For him to take a stand on something that amps up the people who are in that room in Montgomery County might be good for him. But he can t- at some point, do you, if you're Dan Crenshaw, do you start to think, well, maybe I just need to go under the radar for a little bit. I don't really have a serious primary challenge, so maybe being out here and having all these fights with people is not a great idea. Or maybe he does have, you know, somebody in that uh, in that district that he's worried about, and he's just handling it all wrong. Well, it's all about goals, right? You know, I think I What's think doing? you know Dan Crenshaw has a different set of goals than you know some of these congressmen that you talked about that we don't hear from, right? You know, some of those congressmen just kind of want to stay in office as long as they can, right? And it's like in Crenshaw's case, I think he sees himself as a bigger national player. You know, his mm-hmm. campaign accounts show that he's one of the top Republican fundraisers in the nation sure. at this point. You know, he's you know been talked about as a presidential candidate or you know working in somebody's administration down the road. Road, maybe running mm-hmm. for statewide office. So I think yeah. he's like, he's trying to seize on this brand that he thinks is kind of, you know, a straight talking Republican, but that straight talking Republican, it's just like anything. It's, it's like as a journalist, the more words I put on a piece of paper, the more chances one of them's wrong. <laughs> you know, It's like, you just got to be careful. You know, overwriting yeah. well, is a problem. Just like yeah. over talking can be a right. problem where you accidentally then say something that somebody could say, wait, are you saying Jesus and Superman are in one category and Rosa Parks and Reagan are in a different? You know, it's like you can see yeah. where somebody would want to maybe, again, like as you mentioned, there might be a lot of people right now who are already upset with Crenshaw about mm-hmm. previous things he said about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, that was it. On yeah. previous shows that we talked about. It's like, and so those people are already fired up and ready to come, you know, you know sock them in the teeth on something. And right. then he just kind of gives you something kind of unintentionally that you know people are going to seize on he's going to get a lot more of this as we go along until mm-hmm. he gets out of his primary i think he should expect a lot more of this kind of chatter and kind of chewing at him from the right to me it seems like if he has his eye on bigger prizes which and we've heard a lot about that right the, the, the sort of uh, chatter that surrounds him about different places he could end up uh including uh what we had heard a lot about at one point and and it's maybe still the case that uh Senator uh, Cornyn uh, thinks of him as somebody who would be you know a good successor in that seat whenever Cornyn uh decides to retire um you know which which could be coming up fairly soon although he's a US senator it may be in the law at that point that senators cannot retire i mean that <laughs> Seems like none of them do, <laughs> um, yeah. but at some point the seat will come open. Um, if you have your eye on the prize that is further down the road, you don't have to engage in every single fight. Yeah, you don't have to. Every time somebody tries to bait you into a fight, you don't have to go there. You don't have to do it, and you don't have to do everybody's podcast. You can just do some podcasts. You don't have to do every single TV show. You can do some shows, right? You do want to be in demand. One of, one of the things that you can do to create demand for yourself is say no sometimes. Maybe I'm not going to do that interview. Maybe I'm not going to, do, you know, agree to have this profile done about me, right? If you if you have if you're in it for the long haul, make people wonder a little bit. What what does Greg Abbott really think about school vouchers? We don't know, and we heard him talk a lot, right? You don't have to yeah. <laughs> weigh in. You don't have to weigh in on every single thing or engage in every single fight that is, uh, you know, right in front of you. Every fight you're invited to. All right, if you enjoy the show. You know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. Give us the best rating that you can. Follow us on Twitter. For you, it's what? Jeremy S. Wallace. For me, it's Scott Braddock. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we'll catch you next time. Mm